So Samuel moves on to the next logical conclusion. Okay, fine, not the firstborn. There must be the secondborn. Uh. Oh, no, also. Uh. There must be the thirdborn. Uh. Oh, no, also. <laughs> and so it goes on and on and on. And so Jesse has his sons pass by Samuel one by one. And as each one passes by, God reveals to Samuel, as each one passes by, he has not chosen them. Okay, God doesn't tell Samuel at the very beginning, I haven't chosen any of these. No, <laughs> as he encounters them, I have not chosen this one. No, I have not chosen this one. No, I have not chosen this one. And so by the time God had rejected the last son, Jesse seemed to have run out of sons. I don't know about you, but if I were in Samuel's shoes at that point, my first thought would probably have been, did I hear you wrongly, God? Or surely one of these sons are suitable, God? But Samuel probably had more faith because he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? I want to note here that the pressure of this situation was not on Samuel to make the right choice. He didn't have to pick the right guy to become king of Israel. He didn't know Jesse. He didn't know any of his sons. How was he supposed to make that kind of choice? God tells Samuel in verse 3, I will show you what to do. Anoint the one I indicate. And so this is very similar, if, if you remember Abram's call, it's very similar to that. Leave your home, go to the land, I will show you. Samuel didn't have to choose between Jesse's sons. Samuel's responsibility was to discern God's choice and to obey in faith. Now, the past few weeks, we've been talking quite a lot about spiritual leadership, and this is this has been a recurring theme throughout this book. Not just the formal positions, okay, but wherever we have some sort of influence over others to direct them towards God and His purposes. Okay, that is the definition of spiritual leadership. But whether we have some sort of influence over others for God as a pastor or as an LCC member, or as an SG leader, or as a parent, or a sibling, or a grandparent, or a friend, or a neighbor, one of the challenges of spiritual leadership is the pressure of not just are we doing things, but are we doing the right things, right? Specifically, are we leading people in the direction and in the way that God wants? and not just our own way. And so for those of you in some sort of spiritual leadership, I want to just bring some words of encouragement and comfort that when it comes to spiritual leadership, it is not a question of how gifted you are or how experienced you are. That is not what your spiritual leadership hinges upon. God may use those things, but that is not the, the, the crucial uh, the, the crucial point of your spiritual leadership. It's about how faithful you are in listening to God and obeying. The responsibility for us to do our best for Him and to be good stewards of all our gifts, yes, that is still there. But when we obey God's instruction, the results are up to Him. 
we do our best, we be good stewards, but we do not have full control over what happens with what we offer to God. And so do your best. Continue evangelizing, continue teaching, continue leading, continue encouraging, continue caring. Just know that the results of all those things that you do for the kingdom of God is not entirely up to you. Now, some may find that comforting. Others might find it frustrating. But that is the fact, that God is on the throne, not us. And when we serve Him as spiritual leaders, He is still on the throne. We are mere servants. Now, let's pause for a moment to reflect on the following question. Uh, those at home can discuss among yourselves. How would you be able to tell if, you, if you're following God's direction compared to your own? Okay? How would you be able to tell if you're following God's direction compared to your own? And for the kids, what is it like when you do what God wants instead of doing what you want? Okay, let's take two minutes to reflect on this. Let's move on to our second point. That God values the heart over appearances. <clears throat> now, when Jesse's firstborn son is first revealed, God tells Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward experience appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
But what does God mean when He talks about the heart? Obviously, He's not talking about the condition of the organ responsible for circulating blood throughout the body. Right? He's not talking about uh, how many percent of your arteries are clogged. You know, that's what God looks at. Uh, what does God mean when He talks when he says he looks at the heart. Let's have a quick look at this video to explain. Heart, in Hebrew, is sometimes pronounced levav, or more often in a shorter form, lev. Now, different cultures throughout history have had different conceptions of how the human body works, and this is also true of the ancient Israelite writers of the Bible. They knew that the heart was an organ in the chest that sustains life. There's mention of a heart attack in the Bible, Naval, whose heart died inside of him and he became like stone. But the biblical authors talk about the heart in many other ways that might seem strange to modern readers, and that's because these Israelites had no concept of the brain or any word for it. They imagined that all of a human's intellectual activity takes place in the heart. For example, you know with your heart in the Bible. Your heart is where you understand and make connections. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom dwells in the heart. And your heart is what you use to discern between truth and error, like Solomon did when he was king. So the heart is where you think and make sense of the world, and it's where you do more. In the Bible, the heart is where you feel emotions. You feel pain in your heart, like Hannah did when she couldn't have any children. In fact, the phrase, a broken heart, comes from ancient biblical Hebrew. You also experience fear in your heart. Your heart can melt or be distressed. Your heart can even be depressed. But then on the flip side, your heart is where you experience joy. In Hebrew, to be happy is to be good of heart, or to have a heart of joy. So the heart is the generator of physical life. It's also the center of your intellectual and emotional life, and there's more. In biblical Hebrew, the heart is where you make choices motivated by your desires. So David had it in his heart to build a temple for God. Your heart is where your affections are centered. They're called the desires of your heart. And if you really want something and go after it, it's like what Nathan said to David, whatever is in your heart, go and do it. So then, in the Bible, the heart is the center of all parts of human existence. So in the Bible, especially in the context of the Old Testament, the heart represents the inner man, the mind, the will, the emotions, the desires, everything that influences the outward actions, everything on the inside, not just the feeling-feeling side. So God values the conditions of our hearts, our thinking, our choices, our feelings, our desires. He values all those things over the external appearances that we present others with, like our physical appearance, our social status, our material possessions, the things that we can influence through outward actions. God values all the inner things more than the outer things. Well, we see this truth when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for fasting and praying in order to show other people. Right, so that other people can see and be impressed and say, wow, you're so holy. Right? We also see this in uh, his teachings where he, he teaches about how sin committed in the heart is already considered sin, even when it does not yet translate into action. Because when, it, when, when the sin is in the heart, that's when it gives rise to the physical acts of adultery or theft or murder. And so the, the qualifier for whether you have sinned or not is not about the outward action. It is about the heart.
Okay, so God and Jesus has always uh, valued and prioritized the heart. When Samuel asked Jesse if he has any more sons, Jesse says, they're still the youngest. He is tending the sheep. Uh, so just quickly about, about this part. The youngest in the family was usually given the task of taking care of the family's sheep in this agricultural society. And today we, we associate the shepherd with the leadership of Jesus, right? Our chief shepherd. Uh, we think of shepherd as something like good and glamorous. But back then, the task of herding sheep is not anything particularly glamorous or respected. It's something that you give to people who don't know how to do more skilled things. Okay? So it was a role that usually isolated them far away from everybody else for most of the day because you can't be grazing sheep right next to your home. And so this is probably why David wasn't there with the rest of his brothers. So David finally enters the scene in verse 12. Although his height is not mentioned, it wouldn't have been very tall because he was still a, a younger, younger guy, probably in his mid-teens, but he's apparently good to look at. Uh, remember, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. Okay, so his handsome appearance is not the factor of why God chooses him. Now, there's an important contrast between David and Saul that isn't just about their outward stature that, you know, Saul was tall and impressive and David was not as impressive a physical figure. And that important contrast is their inner character, their heart. David, we will see later, was a person of humility. He was a person of courage. And you compare this with Saul, who we have seen in the past few weeks, was a proud person with many insecurities. And those were the source of his downfall. And so you can see the contrast of the quality of their heart, what they valued, what they had ambition of. It would be their heart that affected their faithfulness to God. And so that's why God values the heart more than appearances. Another reason is because appearances, which is the outward display that we present to others, appearances can be deceiving. The Hebrew verb to, to see is all over this passage in, in chapter 16, and the word used for appearance is also related to seeing. And so a key lesson here is that God sees beyond what man can see that all man can see is the appearance and whatever is presented. God sees beyond that. He sees the heart, which is what man often cannot see. Now, the global makeup uh, industry, the beauty industry, is worth over 500 billion US dollars, estimated. And that's because makeup can do wonders. You see in this photo, these two women, they are the same person. Okay, it's the wonders of makeup. And that's just makeup, not including what modern plastic surgery can do. And so today, how you present yourself does not necessarily reflect who you truly are. People usually only see what their eyes 
can see. But God cannot be deceived. He sees way beyond the surface. Many parts of the Bible tells us that God weighs the heart. He searches the heart. He knows the heart. He knows the secrets of the heart. And so God cares about who we really are, not just who we are portraying ourselves to be. And so this can be a very scary thing if we are trying to hide parts of ourselves from God. But we know that's not possible, Scripture tells us. We cannot go anywhere from His presence. But it doesn't have to be a scary thing. It can also be a very freeing thing. Because as humans, we are used to being perceived in a certain way because of our appearances. Often we have very little control over what we've been born with or other circumstances that affect our externals. So, for example, whether you're born tall or short, you don't have control over that. Uh, what kind of features, what kind of teeth, uh, what sort of proportions of how big your eyes are, uh, is, it, is your nose in the center, and all those things. You don't, we don't have control over those things. And sometimes even our disabilities, our challenges, we don't have control over those things. And so, many times we grow up with these difficulties of recognizing we cannot change these things, and yet society perceives us in a certain way because of these things. And so many people grow up with insecurities, baggages, and it affects us, right? When we are not considered attractive enough or normal enough, or rich enough, or respected enough, but that is not what God looks at. Friends, God looks at our heart. He values more than what is beyond our control. And we'll come a bit more to that later. Now, this is a good place for us to pause to reflect on our next question. Is the fact that God looks at your heart a scary thing or a freeing thing for you? Why? And for the kids, is there something you don't like about how you look? What do you think God thinks about it? Two minutes.
Now let's look a little closer at God's choice of David. On the outside, there really wasn't anything special about David. I've already mentioned how he wasn't tall, impressive, right? He was still in his mid-teens when God chose him. He had also done nothing to deserve the kingship, nor was he qualified in any way. He had no accomplishments, no training. He didn't even have any birthright. Now, David is the youngest of the family, and he's not just the one stuck with the job of tending sheep, but he's also last in line for any sort of inheritance, any sort of authority. And in that society, the firstborn was always priority and then followed by the, the, the next. And so David is actually last and least among his brothers. But despite that, God chose him because of his heart. In verse 1, when God says he has chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king, the Hebrew there for chosen is literally, I have provided for myself. I have provided for myself. And so what that means is that God's choice is also his provision, meaning that his choice cannot be lacking. Think about that. When God provides, he does not provide uh, to a point where there's lack, right? He provides fully. And so when God chooses, it is not a lacking choice. But what about Saul, you might ask? Didn't God choose him as well? Didn't, Saul, uh, didn't Samuel anoint him as well? Well, I don't think that Saul didn't have what it took to lead Israel. I think he just made the wrong choices due to his preoccupation with what men thought rather than what God thought. Saul turned out to be a man after the heart of men, right? not after his God. But at the point when God chose him, I don't think he lacked the ability or the potential to truly be the right king for Israel. And so is there anything that God is calling you to where you don't feel deserving or qualified? Maybe we're not even thinking about our externals, you know, whether we have uh, the, 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 the looks or whether we have the, the money or whether we have the background. Maybe we don't think that our heart is good enough. Maybe we think our heart cannot possibly be like David, who was this man after God's heart. I don't have that kind of heart. Well, I have news for you. God doesn't expect a perfect heart. Just a heart that earnestly seeks after His. And that's what it means to be a man after God's heart. Not a perfect heart, but a heart that wants what God wants. We'll come to the story of David and Goliath soon, and it's easy to paint David as some sort of flawless hero, this underdog who rose to overcome all these challenges. Uh, persecuted by Saul for so many years, and he comes out on top, and he's so righteous, and he's so great, like this hero. But never forget his episode with Uriah and Bathsheba, when he committed adultery, committed murder, 
his heart at that point was far from perfect. And this was that man after God's heart. So don't think that just because God looks at the heart and chose David, that our hearts won't be able to measure up to that, that it's an impossible standard. Because unlike the many things that affect our appearance and other externals, our hearts can be influenced. They can even be transformed. I remember how our heart includes our desires. Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, that where our treasure is, our heart will be there also, meaning that we can influence our hearts based on what we set our ambition on. Now, the context in Matthew chapter 6 is between you know, loving God and loving money. And so if you set your heart, your ambition upon God, you know, your, that, that's where your heart will be. James chapter 4, verse 8 tells us that our hearts can be purified by drawing near to God. And Ezekiel 36, verse 26, of course, God himself will give us a new heart, and this will be ultimately fulfilled through the redeeming work of Jesus and the renewing work of the Spirit in us. I just want you to notice the common themes in these past three passages that talk about the heart. Firstly, the heart can be changed, right? There is hope for transformation, but it is not on our own. We cannot change our heart on our own. God is the one who transforms our hearts. Without the Holy Spirit in our hearts, doing His transforming work, there can be no true change to our hearts, only appearances. Now, there's a lot more to this topic, but that's a whole other sermon. Let's come back to Samuel. God identifies David is the one, okay? And so Samuel anoints David. He marks him, sets him apart for God's special purpose as king, and the Spirit of God literally rushes upon David. Interestingly, in the next verse, in verse 14, which was not read because that's the, the very next verse after our passage, the Spirit of God just after it comes upon David, it departs from Saul. Right? And so this marks the transition point, at least from an anointing point of view, from Saul to David, the presence of the Spirit. It would take David over 20 years after his anointing at this point, before he finally becomes king over all of Israel. But we'll come to that in the weeks to come. Let's now pause for our final question. What is one area of your heart where you need God's transforming work? And if I may invite you to also respond to Him in a prayer after that, to ask Him to transform your heart in that area. For the kids, how can God change your heart for the better? And parents, you can help your kids to pray as well. Two minutes.
In conclusion, I'd like you to know that God evaluates a person according to their heart. He does not merely see what man sees. I'd like you to be concerned with your heart more than outward appearances. Take the time to pay attention to its spiritual state and do tend to your heart through the work of the Spirit. Allow God to bring positive change to your heart by seeking Him, by drawing near to Him, and by loving Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.